gentlemen. Uh... Can I please have your attention? Welcome to The Remnant. You may notice this is not Jonah Goldberg's voice. This is David French from The Dispatch. Um, I'm hosting for Jonah. Jonah is out at least for all or part of this week. So you may have a couple of Remnant guest hosts. And I'm really excited uh, to, to fill in for Jonah today because I'm talking to Robert Draper today, correspondent for GQ, contributor to New York Times Magazine, author of a number of books, including Dead Certain, The Presidency of George W. Bush, Do Not Ask What Good We Do Inside the House of U.S. Repre- US House of Representatives. Uh, and here's the newest book. I like this title, Weapons of Mass Delusion, When the Republican Party Lost Its Mind. It's been out for about a week. Um, Robert, welcome to The Remnant. Thanks so much for having me on, David. Uh, well, it's a real pleasure to have you, and I'm going to do this remnant book interview the way Jonah tries to do, rem- or the way Jonah does remnant book interviews. Let me just start with a question: What's your book about? Sure. the The key to the book, or the unnoticed word, I suppose, in the subtitle is when. Um, this book isn't a history book; it's a book about a a um, what I think is a pivotal, uh, historically speaking, uh, snapshot in time: the 18 month period beginning. January the 6th, 2021, um, more or less until June of this year. And for me, as someone who was both inside and outside the Capitol on January the 6th, um, that cataclysmic day um, should have been um, a wake-up call for the Republican Party, a a point at which the GOP took stock of um, uh, what responsibility it bore for um, the near overturning of uh, a democratically elected um, president, uh, and instead of um, uh, descending into a kind of penitent state of meditation, uh, the party did the opposite. It, it, um, it largely doubled down on um, those MAGA views that gave rise to the insurrection and um, allowed the host body, the GOP, uh, to become uh, overtaken by those forces. And um, those individuals, such as Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, are among the principal actors that I focus on in my book. But I also focus as well on those who have been diluted en masse, which is to say the right. tens of millions of Republicans who believe um, not only that the election was stolen, but believe a succession of adjacent lies too. So you're not coming into this fresh in other words this is not your first look at the right you've you've been looking at the right for a really long time and have been reporting on it you're not conservative what drew you to the beat for what it's worth and i'm not sure it's worth much i've been a registered independent for most of my adult life i'm from um, a conservative background Uh, my father was a republican my mother was a democrat they cheerfully canceled out each other's votes (laughs) every election cycle um as long uh, as the key is cheerfully that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, it's you know, I mean, that was the thing that my you know, uh, my father, uh, an avowed conservative, nonetheless, would never have thought to demonize people who disagreed with him um, uh, and call them human scum or unpatriotic. Elsie wouldn't have stayed married to my mother for sixty four years, uh, and um, uh, but you know, I've I, um, uh, I've been principally covering um, conservatives. 
since um, my the governor of my native state, um, George W. Bush, uh, began thinking about running for president and began spending time with him in 1998, uh, moved to Washington in 2005 to write a book about his presidency. Uh, he and members of his White House cooperated extensively with that. On the heels of that, I, uh, I also more or less embedded myself with the McCain campaign and after that uh, with the Tea Party freshman for a book that you referenced earlier. So uh, whether um, just um, through by falling into that particular slipstream or being uh, the, per- the person at the New York Times uh, magazine who could be counted on uh, to, um, to uh, get to know uh, conservatives, that became unofficially my beat. So because of because of all this history, I'm really eager to talk to you, not just about sort of the part that your your current book covers, because we're definitely going to get to that, including, I think, one of the shocks of, I've been shocked by a lot of things, but one thing that shocked me was right after January 6th, seeing Mitch McConnell and um, Vice President Pence's approval rating plummet with Republicans and not Donald Trump's. Uh, that was something that shocked me. We'll get to that. So I was, I've been inside the conservative movement since, you know, my, since gosh, I I would say high school when I first started to form a real political worldview and identity. And my perception, people will say to me, uh, well, nothing changed. This is just what the right has been. It's just more obvious now. And I'm on the inside saying, no, things changed. Things did change. And so uh, from your perspective, you know, I, I, and I, I admit, I, I now know I was in a bit of a bubble. I was in sort of the Federalist Society conservative legal movement bubble, which was very intellectually oriented, very oriented on ideas and jurisprudence. And and I am now realize I was disconnected from a lot of stuff. All of that's pretty obvious to me at this point. Um, so I guess my question is to you, from your long involvement going back to Bush, embedding with McCain, is what is there a real change that you've seen or is this part of is this something that's always been kind of a dominant side of conservative politics was more suppressed how do you view um the move from bush to mccain to tea party to trump and that's a huge question but you've been in part of it you've been in it since that time how how do you view that whole transition yeah, I mean, I more or less where you've been, David, insofar as I have not um, subscribed to this notion that a lot of people on the left have pushed that this was all an inevitability, that the Republican Party um, uh, has always been this way, and it's now just um, uh, uh, it's, it's a truth hiding in, in plain sight. Right. What I do, what I do believe, though, is that when we hear people use the, the term hijack to de- to describe Trump's hold over the Republican Party, that there's a dubiousness to that as well. Because after all, mm-hmm. if, a, if a vessel is hijacked, then that suggests a number of things. First, that it um, bears no responsibility, um, <laughs> right. that, um, that it was a, uh, that it was a perfectly uh, functioning uh, vessel before then. And, and, uh, uh, and I don't think that all of that's accurate. It's certainly the case, for example, um, that um, 
Republicans, for as long as I've been covering them, have accepted as an article of faith that Democrats cheat in elections. Um, yeah, uh, you hear that. You hear that over and over. And it's and yeah. and it's unsupported by evidence, unless you want to go back to, say, the 1948 U.S. Senate election in, in Texas. Um, and uh, there have been instances of um, of gatekeepers committing fraud, but often those um, frauds have been perpetrated against, for example, um, uh, uh, constituents of color. And uh, but but that is a that that's been a notion that was mm-hmm. out there that Trump took full advantage of. And uh, um, the notion as well that that Democrats, because they didn't necessarily line up um, uh, to the extent that, say, Republicans did in their support for Bush's decision to invade Iraq um, would suggest that they were somehow less than patriotic, um, has also, you know, um, uh, been out there for a while and, again, was something that um, Trump exploited, um, uh, that uh, as his deployment now of the term patriot to describe his followers um, means that the inverse is true, that the people who don't follow him are, are less than patriotic. And, and um, but, you know, again, I say all of this to nonetheless say that, um, that for whatever cultural racial and economic grievances were harbored by significant constituencies in the Republican Party, no one quite catalyzed those grievances um, in the manner that Trump did. And, and I would say even more significantly, no one sought to delude um, an entire electorate about what is true and what is not. And, and uh, you know, that to me is, is the real preoccupying theme of my book, that, um, um, that as I was saying earlier, that tens of millions of people to this day, David, um, uh, believe and, and recite as if catechism, uh, that the election was stolen, that January the 6th was not what the media is saying that it was, and, and then all these other adjacent untruths about COVID vaccines that they are, take your pick, either ineffectual at best or murderous at most, um, and, uh, and these kinds of things. No one, no one has foisted on to the American electorate a sense of upside-down truth as Trump has. Yeah, you know, I think of it as a series of there were a series of signposts early on uh, that predicted and forecasted this moment. And I wrote about one in The Atlantic a couple of weeks ago, which was the 2012 South Carolina primary. And there was a moment in the debate before the 2012 South Carolina primary where, uh, I believe it was a CNN debate, where uh, the moderator asked Newt Gingrich about a news report that had just come out that his one of his ex-wives had said, that Newt had pressed him for an open marriage, I believe during the time of Clinton's impeachment, which everyone knows away, uh, er, which everyone knows is also when Newt Gingrich was having his own scandals <laughs> at the time of Clinton's impeachment. And, you know, in a sort of a, if you're looking at the 1998 argument that the GOP made about itself, which was, we're a party of character, we have standards, uh, the Democrats do not have standards. In that circumstance, it feels like the CNN question would have been a fair question. I mean, we're, you know, what kind of person are you, Newt Gingrich, who's trying to become president of the United States? And he just eviscerated the moderator, just eviscerated. And I remember hearing the crowd at the time, because I was very much a Romney partisan, you know, doing the who, 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 you know, kind of hooting and yelling and 
he wins South Carolina primary. The only time South Carolina voters, primary voters had not voted because South Carolina voters were in the firewall of the establishment at the time. And they voted for Newt pretty overwhelmingly in 2012. And Romney went on to win. But I noticed not at that time when Romney lost, I noticed a anger. And there's a popular story here, which is the anger was on behalf of Mitt because he'd been mistreated. I didn't notice that as much as I saw anger at Mitt for not being more pugilistic. I, I, for one thing, let me just say, David, I loved that um, essay of yours in The Atlantic. And, and also that I remember quite well um, that 2012 debate in South Carolina. And for your listeners, it's worth them knowing that when you say Gingrich eviscerated the moderator, his evisceration was not um, refuting the charge against him, no. right? That he had extramarital no. affairs. And instead it was a how dare you moment and, and yeah. basically turning the tables on the moderator to say, this is the problem with America. Not um, uh, the very asking of this question shows you how, how um, venal the news media is. And immediately um, uh, what he did in his outrage feigned or 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 not um was to uh to set altogether different stakes about you know what this election really was about it wasn't about character it was it was and and you know i i do think that gingrich um bears some culpability for um the state that we're currently in since after all Prior to Newt Gingrich in, say, 1993 and then finally the election of 1994, um, Republicans uh, and Democrats would often say, you know, uncharitable things about each other, but not with the kind of zero-sum vehemence, um, the sort of art of war, uh, um, viciousness even, that um, that Gingrich uh, employed in '94, and uh, making clear that that, and he said this in memos that actually are still on file in in uh, his uh, in his library in his papers because I know because I read them that um, uh, that you must you must attack and and describe Democrats as well as media as um, incorrigible liars and and. This was a new feature in American politics. The final thing I'll say relating to Romney is you're you're exactly right that it's a kind of revisionist notion that some people embrace um, to this day. That oh, this you know the day that that they that the Democrats said terrible things about Mitt and the dog on top of his car and all that was the day that I realized uh, Democrats were bad faith actors. Okay, you can count you know the people who truly believe that on a couple of hands, perhaps, mm -hmm. but but far more than that was the, that the object lesson of 2012 was that Romney um, hadn't been tough enough and, right. uh, and, and that um, Republicans, um, and of course all this made manifest by the rise of Donald Trump, um, simply needed to throw elbows without any apology. I, you know, and, and that's when I really began to notice the divergence between the Republican establishment and the Republican base. Because I'm living in Middle Tennessee, Definitely Republican-based territory, <laughs> definitely. And on the one hand, you had the establishment with the post, the election autopsy, which was, if anything, that Mitt had been kind of too tough. You know, the self-deporting and the forty-seven percent comment and all of this. And and you know, the way I've kind of put it is the the establishment said, "Here's our way forward: the open hand, 
Um, we need more Hispanic voters. We need to be, bring more people in the Republican tent. Too few people see Republicans and see themselves. It's a really interesting artifact to go back and read that autopsy. And then at the same time, there's a base that's saying, no, you, you have to hammer them. You have to hit them hard. And it was sort of the way of the political open hand versus the way of the political fist. And the interesting thing to me is that the we're, we're, we're migrating to the current moment. <laughs> so Trump wins in 2016, and it seems, you know, it, it was as if the argument was then settled at that point. It is the fist. The fist works. And even though you lost the House in 2018, even though you lost the presidency and the Senate in 2020, the fist is still the fist. But that gets us to the thing, to one of the key questions. Well, it, what if you don't acknowledge that you lost? Then you're not susceptible to market correction, so to speak, right. <laughs> <laughs> from the voters telling you, no, this is not the way that, that we want. Um, and so, and have you seen, and what I have seen here is people have created this sort of closed loop, which is Donald Trump proved that it works. This is the way. And, but wait, he lost. No, he didn't lose. It works. This is the way. And have you, I mean, I'm sure you've seen the same thing talking to a, a big pile of uh, election deniers over the last year or so. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I, so yes, the, the it that works, David, is, um, so you you phrased it well, and, and my phraseology has been a little bit different, which goes something like this, that it's really hard um, in politics and in life to persuade, persuade someone who doesn't really like you to like you. Um, right. Trump provided another way. That way was um, to for, not only forget about those people, but actually demonize them and instead get the people who like you to love you. And you get them to love you, um, not necessarily um, it's important to, to, to posit yourself as being on their side, but most of all, to share with them enemies, um, to have the same enemies. And, and, uh, and so you, um, you, you, uh, you stir up your base uh, you demonize the other side. And if in the end you lose, um, you say you didn't lose. You, you, you say it was fixed. And, and, and that's, that's a, that confection, that lie that, um, that the election was stolen plays into something deeper, which is a sense of forfeiture that the base has had for a while, that their America has been stolen from them, that they are the rightful um, inhabitants of and claimants of America, but it is piece by piece being taken away by a convergence of enemies, you know, on the left uh, with the media and the deep state, et cetera. And, and, and so um, uh, beginning with the fact that, as I alluded to earlier, it's been out there, the, the notion that Democrats cheat. Um, but, but now to see the argument made manifest uh, and to be put in the context of this greater sense of loss, uh, it, it becomes a kind of revelation. And it brings almost some, um, you know, a, a frisson of, of clarity. Uh, I write about this in the book, how, how in a way, um, in a very perverse way, I think the lie brought joy, you know, because of its clarity. It's, it, uh, at last, now we know, now the whole world can see. Um, we, you know, this is our America and it's being stolen from us and this is Exhibit A. There's a couple of things when I, there are some moments and when I talk to folks who are very hardcore, because what I found in, in my, in my 
life and in my environment here, is it really you can kind of break the group, the Republicans down into three groups. And uh, none of this is original, um, but a hardcore Trump, hardcore, you know, the Marjorie Taylor Greene sort of side of life. And then not at all apologetic for voting for Trump, would do it again, but would be happy to vote for somebody else. And then a much smaller group, which is uh, a version of sort of the me group, which is appalled by the whole phenomenon. And maybe, you know, some of them are hanging on to their GOP identity by their fingernails. Some have said, I'm a pox on that house. I won't be back unless and until they repudiate Trumpism. But when I'm talking to that hardcore group, um, there are two things that really loom large to them in addition to the election. And I'm very curious as to um, if you saw this as well. And one of the two things is the 2020 riots. In other words, that the that when you talked about at last people can see moment, the 2020 riots were for them at last, can't you see what the left is really like? And then the other one is the COVID lockdown. Even if the lockdown wasn't particularly draconian, like it was in, in Tennessee, it was ir- unrecognizable compared to like New York or California even if it wasn't particularly draconian in your area, it was the COVID lockdown that then also exposed this is what they wanted, how they really want to oppress you. And I've wondered if you've heard some version of that, that same thing as those as revelatory moments as to how profoundly um, evil, uh, you know, the, the Democratic Party or the forces of the establishment are. Yeah, I mean, that's that's very well crystallized, David. And, and yes, is the short answer. That's exactly what I've heard. And, and sort of um, taking the second one first, um, the the COVID lockdowns, um, uh, you know, the, I've talked to a lot of social psychologists as well as actual psychologists, you know, who's who have noticed who noticed during that period a radical uptick. And um, not just uh, the the number of aggrieved people, but the intensity of their aggrievement, uh, the feeling, the the sense of isolation that they had, which produced any number of things, not only anger and resentment, but also caused them um, to dive deeper down the rabbit holes of the internet. And uh, um, but uh, and and in those dark corners of the internet would find answers. And uh, so I, I mentioned, for example, a guy who'd been um, in my book, a guy who'd been a police chief in uh, a town in Orange County, California, uh, and then later um, quit and became a yoga instructor, didn't really have politics as far as I could tell until the COVID lockdown. And, and during that period of time, um, he became radicalized, ultimately um, uh, did a lot of you know lockdown protests. He's metastasized later into or moved later into Stop the Steal rallies. And ultimately, he's one of the people, um, uh, Alan Hostetter is his name, who's, um, who's charged with a seditious conspiracy for, um, for his violent acts, um, allegedly, at the Capitol on January the 6th. So there's that. The, um, the, the summer 2020 protests, which, you know, it should be added, um, included, you know, acts of violence, property damage, actual riots, um, uh, definitely served as proof to uh, uh, those on the right that um, there was a double standard at work. And, and, and I cannot tell you how embedded 
in um, the shared language of uh, conservatives, the notion became that, see, this is what the left does. They express their political discontents through violence. We do not do that. And I actually mentioned in, in um, my book, I attended in March of 2020, um, actually before these these um, riots, uh, uh, the sentencing of uh, this random guy in Utah uh, who had, over the course of two years, he was a big Trump supporter and um, had placed almost 4,000 calls to Democratic members um, of Congress at the Capitol threatening violence against them. And when the FBI came to his door uh, th- uh, warning that if he did that again, he'd be arrested, he'd say, he said, come on, you can't take that seriously. And, you know what I'm saying? I'm just, you know, okay, I got a little out of hand, but, you know, your time would be better spent um, um, tracking down members of Black Lives Matter. They're the ones who engage in violence. People on the right never do. He was getting this from Sean Hannity and Rush Limbaugh, who said this over and over and over, and he was addicted to talk radio. Of course, that became even more so uh, in the summer of 2020, and we would even hear it expressed um, on the very day of January the 6th, 2021, uh, when and, and in the days and weeks to follow, where Republican members of the House and the Senate would say that had to be Antifa. And, and proof that it was Antifa is simply that we don't do this sort of thing yeah. where demonstrably they do. Yeah. You know, I was uh, on uh, Morning Joe yesterday morning and they had a, a focus group of Trump voters from the Pittsburgh, greater Pittsburgh area. And even now, even in, you know, October of 2022, you heard they were Democratic plants. They were, uh, there was Antifa in the crowd. And also you heard that the prisoners from January 6th are political prisoners, which is a little bit inconsistent, you know, because I don't think they're saying that Antifa is political prisoners. But um, you, you had this sense that this is what they do. You know, and with a lot of, honestly, with a lot of things that uh, a lot of delusions have in their, uh, they have as a basis, some kernels of truth, there were a lot of excuses made. I'm not saying by, this was common amongst Democrats, but sort of in elite conversations, there were some excuses made for violence in 2020. And, and those were amplified and shared all over the conservative world. It, so it wasn't just the violence. It was also that there were elites basically saying, this is all justified rage. And I think that that, that really imprinted in, in a lot of Republicans' minds. That's right. And, and, but along the way, David, there also um, was erased from memory, if indeed they ever knew it to begin with, the fact that um, actual rioters during the social justice protests were arrested. Some of them in Arizona, for example, were charged with RICO offenses. And uh, ultimately, those were those were dropped, I think, at the insistence of the judge. Um, But uh, but the notion that um, all of these people, you know, were uh, enabled by George Soros and then, you know, whisked away from the criminal justice system is erroneous. And, And but I mean, again, all of those did become talking points, too. Yeah, you, you, the sense was they, they not only rioted that there was an elite excuse making industry and nobody was prosecuted. Right. That it was done with impunity when there are hundreds of prosecutions. Right. I, I should I should add, though, with since you brought up Antifa, that this was something that was really striking to me when I, after on January the 6th, when I was inside the Capitol just before the breach, watching as police 
came in staggering, um, beaten and maced. And I helped set up a water station to help flush their eyes out. And then ultimately made my way out through the tunnels of the Capitol and out to the east side of the building um, with my back to the Supreme Court, watching people push their way into the east side. I, I heard throughout the crowd people making scattershot references to Antifa. Uh, they would say, you know, where's Antifa? I thought I saw Antifa. That guy over there, he's Antifa. And it was clear to me that there had been a, a, a belief that this was going to be a kind of battle royal. That um, uh, so, uh, and, and that, um, that they, you know, that these MAGA supporters had to be forever vigilant to the likelihood that whatever they were doing peacefully would surely be subverted by um, violent actors on the left. And, and uh, in fact, you know, to this day, no one has been arrested, you know, at the Capitol who was a member of Antifa, if indeed, you know, Antifa has members per se. And, um, uh, you know, no such indictments. Of course, to the right, again, that only fortifies the view that, that there was some kind of cover-up uh, and, uh, and, you know, down this down this kind of, well, or, or this zigzag of illogic um, of shifting rationales as to what actually took place or didn't take place at the Capitol that day. Yeah. Well, you know, and the, the sort of um, hunt for Antifa became a national, kind of a national phenomenon. Uh, the, the rumors that would spread even where I live, um, you know, in south of Nashville, Antifa is going to show up and desecrate a monument. Antifa is going to, Antifa is going to be in this rural town square. And, and you would have, um, you would have groups of men armed, sometimes armed, sometimes not, who would sometimes cluster around, say, a Confederate monument or um, to defend it. And this sort of Antifa boogeyman became omnipresent, at least for a time, uh, in in the mind of a lot of folks in the grassroots. It was everywhere and nowhere at, at once. Um, well, let me, let's move on to another thing that I think, you know, in one sense, the the radicalization, radicalization of the right towards violence feels is is certainly feels like an a normal extension of the Trump persona. I mean, we we saw that the Trump calling for acts of violence and his rallies, and that all feels like a, a an extension of the Trump persona. The election denial, obviously, an extension of the Trump persona. I'm really curious about another point, and I want to get your thoughts on this: the anti-vax movement. Now, this is the thing that also goes, if you meet somebody who's absolutely an election denier, there's a very high probability they also don't want to take the vaccine. Um, and there's also a very high probability they have questions about supporting Ukraine. Like there's sort of a menu of, of views that come along. But I'm very curious to get your position or, or your, uh, your thoughts on the anti-vax side of this. Because on the one hand, I think if you're evaluating the Trump presidency uh, and trying to do it as objectively as possible, you'd say that Operation Warp Speed was, if not the greatest accomplishment of the presidency, I, it's hard for me to think of one the greater than that. Um, and, and yet the definitive angry anti-vax element on the right has been really shocking to behold. And so... That scene, what's your, what's your judgment on where that comes from? So you're correct to point out that, uh, that that 
serves the 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 uh, the, the very rapid um, research and dissemination production and then dissemination of vaccines stands as a triumph of the Trump presidency and thus um, constitutes a kind of point of discomfort for Trump himself, which you see, you know, uh, and here at rallies where, you know, there is Trump facing his adoring thousands, many of them wearing shirts that that express open hostility to or conspiracy theories about um, the vaccines. And, uh, And so Trump has been sort of all over the map with this stuff, where, for example, a Marjorie Taylor Greene has not. And uh, again, I mean, if she's all over the map, it's just the range is from they don't do any good to they kill you. And uh, but but certainly not that they are virtuous. And as to you know where, um, look, I, I think that, that there has been an anti-vax community that actually transcends ideology. Um, uh, there are you know, uh, people in, in California who are more associated with sort of the woo-woo, you know, um, spirituality who've, who've been against vaccines and this to some degree has played into that. But it also, I think, is, you know, is, is um, it fortifies the notion of a government that um, is willing to uh, uh, is willing to unravel an economy and enforce um, uh, a, a belief system on people who you know aren't ready to to swallow it whole, and thus the once again um, the uh, the deep state uh, and its um, enablers on the left uh, um, are um, are basically they um, are not only insensitive to uh, the plight of Americans um, who may be losing their livelihoods because of these shutdowns, but also um, are are forcing onto them things that they have not fully explained and in the, uh, meaning the vaccines and in the, and in the um, absence of uh, a coherent um, uh, explanation of what um, will keep you from getting COVID because of course science is itself fluid and, and, and thus, you know, lacks a certain coherency, at least, you know, when you freeze frame certain moments of it, that that's, that's enabled people then to have their aha moments, which, which again, Marjorie Taylor Greene and others on the right have continually done, you know, to, to point out each and every instance where um, uh, in the UK, uh, someone died because they are the 0.001% persons who should not have, who would have an adverse reaction to the vaccine as proof that the vaccines are killers and that the government has been covering this up. And, and, and there is, and, and I think this is something, again, I'm, it, it's something I spent some time with in my book. There's this, you know, cottage industry um, that um, financially incentivizes um, disinformation of this sort. Uh, there, there's a real market for it. Uh, there are traveling roadshows dedicated to it, and uh, and people who really didn't have much to do with their time, as far as I could tell, before this, who are now stars of the of these kinds of conspiracy movements, and 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 have the absolutely nuttiest notions about you know brain implants inserted by the Chinese, et cetera, that um, that accompany uh, discussion about about the vaccines. Uh, some of these people may not have been activists, you know, uh, within the GOP, but there is only one political party that is a host body uh, to to these kinds of notions. 
Well, there is a parallel economy and a parallel culture of all for all of this. Um, and people are just now seeing it uh, or kind of waking up to it in the broader media. You've seen more coverage of the Reawaken America tour. This is the I've Michael been there. Flynn. Yeah, yeah. Right. I know. I, I am. Tell, tell, you've been there. I, I was writing about this thing months ago. Um, and I was, you know, jumping up and down saying, this is going on. <laughs> They're packing, packing thousands of people in churches and community, you know, civic centers across the United States. This is the number two draw behind Trump. If you're talking about rally size and everything. So t- tell folks about a Reawaken America event. What, what is that? Absolutely. I attended one in Phoenix at a megachurch called Dream City ah, yes. in, um, I believe, the beginning of this year. Uh, and it is a two-day uh, event um, where they charge 20, $225 a head, more if you want to be a VIP and get to meet some of the speakers, probably 30 speakers totals, uh, including some big ticket items like the aforementioned General Mike Flynn uh, and Eric Trump um, when I was there. And then a lot of people who I'd never heard of, but who apparently have um, lots of books to hawk and T-shirts and and, uh, miracle potions that are alternatives to the COVID vaccines. But in the course of those um, two days, um, there were maybe 3,500 people, I think was the capacity of the church, and and it was standing room only. Uh, I heard, you know, uh, again, um, people describing, um, so the the thing that, that, that really was crystallizing to me or, or clarifying for me, David, about this was that um, uh, a lot of the talk was about COVID. And by the way, in this crowd yeah. of 3,500 at the beginning of 2022, zero people were wearing a mask because right. to wear a mask was basically to show what a gullible idiot you were. And <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and, and and a lot of people, a lot of the speakers talked about the COVID fraud. Um, and I began to realize that, um, holy crap, this actually now now I see a larger coherency at work here, which is that um, the perpetration of the notion that everything is a fraud, election fraud, medical fraud, uh, social justice fraud, uh, you know, it's in um, uh, media fraud, uh, monetary fraud. And, and so when everything is a fraud, that means a couple of things. First, audits and investigations endlessly, right? You know, so um, uh, uh, of, of all these things. And in the meantime, it means another thing, which is that um, the truth is up for grabs. You know, it's, if, if everything is a lie, then, um, then who needs facts? You know, it's, uh, then, then use your imagination. And, and so, you know, this, in this kind of upside down world, um, all these other people were spewing just these crazy, crazy conspiratorial notions. But I mean, were they any, and the implicit argument is, but is this any less plausible than the frauds we know have been perpetrated against us by the media, by election officials, et cetera? And, um, and so then, you know, you come to like, uh, you know, Donald Trump and the obnoxiousness of, of him naming his social media platform Truth Social and that a, tw- and that a tweet of it is <laughs> right. a truth. It's a truth. And, <laughs> yeah. And then you see these, um, you know, lesser but, but quite influential uh, um, uh, actors in the right-wing media ecosystem with names like Real America's Voice and One American News. And they all reinforce a notion that we are actually, you know, the custodians of the truth and everything else you have heard is a fraud. That to me 
was a revelation that was actually worth the price of the of admission to uh, reawaken America to just to yeah. just to see all of that. Well, and I'm a complete idiot because the thing that inspired me to write about the Reawaken America tour, which I had been following and thinking, is this a big deal? Is this a big deal? Was your report in the New York Times about the Dream City Church? Mm-hmm. All right, uh, there you go. Yeah. So, and now I'm seeing APs picking it up. Lots of local, lots of local news are picking. Uh, there's a, been a flood in the last three to four weeks of attention on this particular thing which you were in on early as a big deal. And, you know, I think there's, a, there's this really interesting problem that exists in the media, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this. The media is too much on Twitter, and I'm guilty of this myself um, because this is where sort of everybody in our media peer group, this is the social media platform of choice. I mean, I guess America should be grateful for that because if it was TikTok, then we'd all be dancing and that would be a nightmare. But the, sure. uh, the, so Twitter is where everybody is and Twitter's much more of an elite platform. So if you're going to have people opining about Christian nationalism on Twitter, you're going to have a lot of pushback, say, from right-wing seminarians or right-wing, um, you know, uh, some leading right-wing figures who have, or who are, who are PhDs in theology talking about Christian nationalism, whereas what's really happening on the ground is, is this Reawaken America tour, which by the way is sponsored by Charisma News, which is sort of the biggest of the sort of Pentecostal news outlets. It's a, um, you know, at one point Charisma back when, you know, print was a thing, had a much larger circulation than say Christianity Today, the, the flagship sort of evangelical magazine. And so this is sort of transitioning into this Christian nationalism conversation, because when you're talking to Marjorie Taylor Greene, she says she's a Christian nationalist. Um, are you seeing something on the ground that is different from what you're seeing sort of in the elite spaces communication about Christian nationalism? Because it strikes me that the Christian nationalist argument has been sort of made and is over on the ground. On the ground, it is we, you know, we're taking back America, not just for the GOP, but for Christ. That's um, right. And, yeah, I agree. Yeah. And elite spaces, it's, well, what do we, what do we really mean by this? Are you saying that Christians shouldn't participate in public, you know, that, that kind of conversation when that's been over settled, done, and the, the army of the Lord is on the march. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's a settled argument and, and uh, it's, it's fine in a, in a, Twitter meets think tank kind of way to be um, picking apart, uh, you know, deconstructing uh, the meaning and the pervasiveness of, of being a, you know, a, a Christian nationalist. But, uh, um, but uh, you know, to Marjorie Taylor Greene, when I talked to her about it, she said that she didn't even know that that was, that there was any history to that term. She just believed a man in her particular case, that she's a Christian who loves her nation. And, uh, <laughs> but you know, okay. That's literally, I, I, I take her at her word. It's still a bit disingenuous when you recognize that, um, uh, that wanting uh, Christianity to be at the center of American life, believing that is its natural place, both in government and in schools, for example, um, constitutes a radical departure from from where uh, where we've been or where we should be. And and uh, um, she said to me, "No, I don't think there should be a religious test 
for anyone uh, who you know holds government. That's um, at the same time we've heard her denounce Ilhan um, Omar and Rashid Tlaib, the two Congresswomen, uh, Democratic Congresswomen, because they are uh, they are Muslim. And uh, and furthermore, I think that, that um, uh, what's just unassailably true, David, is that that um, the Regardless of so, you know, if people like Marjorie Taylor Greene take power, you know, if the Republicans reclaim the House, which I suspect they will do, um, then they're going to they're going to vote on all sorts of legislation. They'll pass it. It'll be dead on arrival in the Senate and or it'll it'll be you know vetoed by Biden. And that'll be the end of that. And then this will just all be kind of for show. But I do think that the, that rhetorically speaking, um, the language that they have employed as a loud but distinct minority should that become a majority um can um can be dangerous you know the, the, because uh, I, I do think that, that the existential call to arms that um that you hear uh implicit in the words of people like green um uh is by any other uh by any other name a kind of war uh, be it a civil war, be it a holy war, but certainly a war in rhetorical terms. And when you you basically posit your side as good and the other side as evil, and you have Christian trappings to that argument, then you have become you know a kind of army of God, and mm-hmm. uh, meaning you can do no wrong and the other side can do no right, and and what is taking place is essentially, uh, you know, um, um, an enactment of, of the book of revelations. Um, I do think that's a, that's a deeply concerning proposition. And, uh, but it's one that, you know, to answer your question is, um, uh, is, uh, you just simply don't hear people, um, uh, among the you know, multitudes of MAGA Republicans who I've spoken with over the last couple of years, reject these um uh this notion of you know we're we're good and they're evil no they embrace it and and uniformly um they embrace it as christians not just as um ideologues Uh, that's a potent and dangerous combination yeah you hear the word demonic a lot um, sure. And, and, you know, in the most recent Reawaken America tour, again, you, you know, you were covering this months and months ago. Um, but now you're seeing much, you're seeing the, you're seeing people posting sort of the live feeds of it. And one of the things that was posted uh, over the weekend was somebody prophesying the angel of death was coming for a host of Democratic figures, um, praying out loud in the name of Jesus against, quote, rhino trash as sort of, you know, this is, this is part of the prayer itself is against rhino trash. And again, this is, a lot of people don't like to hear this because they say, well, this is all completely fringe. This is all very fringe. And my point is, it's not nearly as fringe as you think. Um, we're, we're talking about the largest gatherings this side of Trump rallies. Right. Is what we're, yeah. what we're talking about. But I would go a step further, you know, even beyond what's taking place at Reawaken America. Um, you look at uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene again, for example, who, as I discuss in my book and in the excerpt of my book that the New York Times Magazine recently ran, um, 
has you know been in frequent conversation with a guy who's likely to become Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, and um, he's going to award her plum committee assignments. Uh, he's already placed her directly behind him when he rolled out his commitment to America um, policy agenda, if, if policy agenda is really the word for what it was that he rolled out. I bring all this up to say that um, Green, when you now um, uh, reckon with her current uh, a level of influence, which is considerable, and then imagine what she'll be, her level of influence in a House majority, and then you look back at her rhetoric, where she has repeatedly referred to Democrats as godless. And, and when I asked you know, her about Speaker Nancy Pelosi, for example, who, whatever else you think about her, is a lifelong devout Catholic, Green would have nothing of it. She said, no, she's not. She's, you, can't, you can't call her godful when she supports the killing of babies. Uh, referring to her abortion rights um, supportiveness, and and uh, and for that matter, you know, Green has called um, uh, Democrats communists uh, when they are not, and uh, and Dem- uh, Green has said, uh, make no mistake, Democrats want Republicans dead, and the killings have already started. Right. When 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 a person of significant influence gains even more so and continues to say that kind of thing. Then, um, then it's not just a matter of you know a few thousand people who attend a reawaken America conference in you know some corner of America. We're now talking about millions of people digesting uh, this sort of hateful rhetoric by a person of influence. So I'm going to stand in for some members of the audience right now. Are saying, but Robert, David, this is nut picking, okay? This is nut picking the Michael Flynn reawaken America. Okay, I mean a dangerous little a dangerous fringe, and that they come out for rallies. And Marjorie Taylor Greene, I get it that she's crazy, um, but isn't this the very thing that you know I've decried a million times, which is sort of taking the most extreme version of your opponent and then upholding them as sort of emblematic of the whole, and. When, Taylor, when Marjorie Taylor Greene was elected, one of the things I tried to do was say, look, I've long objected to the way that the right pulls out the squad, Omar and Tlaib and, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and says, this is what Democrats are really like when they're on the left edge of the Democratic Party. So with comes to Marjorie Taylor Greene and Boebert and Madison Cawthorn and Matt Gates and sort of like this right version of the squad, I'm going to kind of keep them... I'm not, I'm going to be very skeptical that they're representative of something larger, but um, it, it seems to me that Marjorie Taylor Greene is no longer in that nut-picking category. She's a massive fundraising force. Um, she has become a cultural force on the right. Is it nut-picking to single out Marjorie Taylor Greene? It would have been in February of 2021 when she was stripped of her committee assignments and and it was widely believed that she would be consigned to the Star Wars bar of (laughs) political oddities. But um, but in fact, um, the latter did not occur. She became, as you say, a fundraising dynamo. She is now among the 210 or so House Republicans, the fourth biggest fundraiser. Two of them uh, ahead of her are in leadership, Kevin McCarthy and Steve Calise. uh, Scalise. And that's unheard of for a freshman uh, to uh, command that kind of uh, fundraising stature. On top of which, uh, she is much in demand 
for uh, endorsements. I mean, there, there she is standing next to J.D. Vance. Um, uh, you know, he, I mean, she, would, she endorsed him early and then helped convince Trump to endorse Vance. Um, absent those things, uh, Vance probably wouldn't have won the primary. McCormick would have won. Uh, she has been there as an endorsee of Carrie Lake and will be campaigning alongside her. Uh, Trump has spoken to her not once but several times about the prospect of her being his running mate. I personally don't think it will happen. I personally believe that he's talked to a lot of people about that. But one reason he's talked to her is that she has been unflaggingly loyal to Trump. And we know how important that is to Trump after the Mike Pence experiment uh, experience. And so, um, so no, I mean, she's, you know, all of that on top of which the, the, um, her her views, which um, by all rights would seem to be fringy, are in fact the views shared by the MAGA base that Kevin McCarthy has paid obeisance to, um, because he knows that without those, without tending to catering to uh, the Trumpian base. Uh, Republicans don't take back the House, and he doesn't become Speaker. So she is a person of real significance, and it's and uh, and and to suggest otherwise is a kind of reflexive both sidesism that is not paying close attention to the facts on the ground. And I should just finally add, David, that all of what I've just described to you, I have learned from my reporting. It has not been because I and others have somehow elevated her. This just simply happened, whether anybody likes her or not. And what it means, among other things, is, is that simply ignoring or dismissing or snickering at Marjorie Taylor Greene doesn't make her influence recede. It is there. Well, and, and I think there's a, there's a dynamic, uh, I wrote about this last week also, where the parts of the right are so anti-left, this is sort of the, the core of the ethos. It's not so much that they have a particular agenda. They're just very thoroughly anti-left with this notion that you don't apologize for anything. You never give one a, a millimeter, much less an inch. And so if people like, uh, if the Democrats are going to take aim at Marjorie Taylor Greene, if they're going to strip her of committee assignments, well, then there's got to be something to her that's worth supporting. It, it, it feels as if it gets that visceral. Well, also, I mean, it's, it's that um, even if they find Green's behavior abhorrent, they find equally, if not more abhorrent, the power play conducted by the Democrats to, right. um, to, to dare to you know, st- strip her of the committee assignments that, um, that she rightfully has. And, and I would also just add, you know, David, to the notion of, of, um, of uh, look, if the Democrats hate it, it must be a, a good thing, <laughs> or at least, you know, um, this person may be bad, but at least they're not Democrats, that we have, you know, the, the case of another Georgian uh, Senate candidate, Herschel Walker, who, who uh, you know, now it's um, the evidence does seem to be very, very persuasive that um, uh, that he himself was, you know, um, uh, advised uh, uh, a woman he was having an affair with to to have an abortion. Uh, and for those you know people on the right who have been screaming that this is tantamount to baby killing, that would seem to be disqualifying. But for the fact that um, people on the right uh, you know uh, believe that Herschel Walker, for all his imperfections, um, is better than a Democrat because he'll vote for uh, pro-life, uh, legislation and that therefore indemnifies him 
from any of these claims that that um, he's not fit for office. Yeah. Okay. So let's let's uh, we've got only a little bit of time left, so, but I do want to move to what now? <laughs> yeah. Because on the one hand, uh, here what gives me sort of cause. I'll, I'll tell you what gives me cause for hope, and then I'll tell you what get yanks that hope away. <laughs> and I'd love your your thoughts on it. So what gives me cause for hope is there's a lot of Republicans who a don't really know all of this stuff. Uh, I'll give you a, a good example. Uh, I was talking to some friends just yesterday, and a friend said, "I just learned that um, the guy who might become the Speaker of the House is casting Ukraine aid into doubt, and that Republicans are weaker on Ukraine aid." Is that right? Is that true? Um, just stunning news to him. And you know, I said, "Well, you know, fifty. I believe it's fifty-seven Republicans voted against the latest round of aid, and there's a majority of Republicans still support Ukraine, but it's softer support than the Democrats." Shocking news, you know, just shocking news. Uh, had no idea, and and so there's this sort of Republicans who have are lifelong Republicans just don't know about a bunch of this stuff, and when they know about it, don't like it. Um, and then there's a group of uh, a number of Republicans, I think, that are just waiting for an opportunity for somebody else to be viable. They're not doing anything sort of affirmative to kind of get push Trump to the side. But there's a lot of people who are ready for somebody else other than Donald Trump, which I think would accomplish some degree of culture change in the GOP. But what gives me some cause for real concern over the long term is the people who have seized the levers of power in many of these state and county, uh, you know, party committees and who are sort of on the Marjorie Taylor Greene side of things are extraordinarily committed and vicious. And so what ends up happening is you have a lot of people who, if they venture out onto their own Facebook uh, wall or whatever, or if they say anything contrary to sort of this this radicalizing perspective, it's like getting shocked with a cattle prod. And so they sort of do the Homer Simpson gif back into the bushes. Like, this is not what I want to do. I don't have, in my life, I do not have the bandwidth to take on my neighbors. And that's the thing that kind of gives me the despair is that you might have a minority who are all in like this, but they are extraordinarily motivated and then as our, our new uh, writer, uh, Nick Cattagio, uh, a la pundit, said, they're willing to walk. Like, they're willing to go ahead and say, if you don't want us, we're out. And so therefore, unlike sort of the mainstream Republicans, are just going to go ahead and vote for the nominee. They're, gonna, they're gonna just going to vote for the nominee. Some of the, enough of these guys will say, I'm out, to where the GOP can't, maybe can't really be viable without them anymore. Um, so that's, that's, there's the hope, there's the concern. Where are you? <laughs> well, yeah. And those are, those really are two sides of the same coin, David. I mean, it's a, by the way, to what Nick, you know, was observing regarding, uh, uh, these people who might just walk, that actually has been the hope expressed to me by some of the Republicans in the first category. That, that is to say, look, this is our party. We're not walking away. You know, I've been a lifelong you know, Republican. These Trumpians are imposters. They're fake conservatives, you know, and, and so let them form their own freaking third party. Um, you know, but 
But I guess my problem with so why I tend to be more in the the latter despairing category than the former hopeful category is because that first group of Republicans um, uh, are you know largely on the sidelines or or at least largely passive. And I do not know in the meantime um, how the activists who, as you described, are tenacious. Um, uh, how you flush out of their systems um, a uh, something equally tenacious, which is uh, their view and the gospel, their 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 um, fidelity to this gospel of lies. Yeah. I, I honestly don't know how you undo those those notions um, held by tens of millions, supported by a cottage industry of grifters. Um, who nonetheless are influential. I don't know um, how they become to, you know, say it as a social psychologist would, how they become deprogrammed. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know how it goes away. And, and in the former group, uh, the former group consists of a lot of Republicans who hope and, be, and in many cases believe that it somehow will. But I don't know their plan. I've never heard it articulated. And, um, and instead, um, the only plan that I can think of or the only um, way in which it, it, uh, people become disabused of this is ultimately um, through a succession of election cycle losses where um, where they're in control and under their watch, um, uh, either through incompetent governance or something else, um, uh, they are soundly uh, uh, rejected by the electorate, not just once, because that will then claim that we'll hear the claims of stolen elections, but repeatedly. Uh, that's a, you know, um, even that is a very unpretty scenario, um, but but it's the only one I can think of um, that points towards a restoration of sanity within the GOP. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I, I, the, the, as each sort of month goes by and you see the hold, um, that these conspiracies have, in particular, the election conspiracy, which now you have hundreds of people running who've either outright embraced it, just outright wrap both arms around it, or have really given it a lot of oxygen. They're unwilling to sort of say definitively that the 2020 election was fair and free, and they're unwilling to condemn the election um, protests. Uh, So you have this big, huge, critical mass of folks who are completely, um, who who have bought to greater or lesser degrees these really, and when you when you peel it back, I think the thing that's so dispiriting to me is that they're, it's not just lies. Many of them are ridiculous lies, just ludicrous, ludicrous lies, and that's what's been so dispiriting. And I got to be honest with you, Robert. It reminds me of. When I was in Iraq and I was in uh, the middle of the Sunni-Shia civil war, and I'm talking to Sunni and I'm talking to Shia, the conspiracy mindset was unbelievable. It was literally, you, you thought your opponent, they, they thought the other side was so evil that they're willing to believe literally any story, any story that would amplify or confirm the evil of, you know, the evil of the Shia or the evil of the Sunni. And that's what it's starting to feel like to me. Thankfully, we don't have anything like the violence, but that mindset has really started to lock in. And that's going to bring me sort of to the last question, the thing that we haven't talked about yet. 
How prevalent have you seen sort of the ultimate expression of the evil of Democrats is Q, is the QAnon theory. In your reporting, um, how prevalent would you call say that Q or Q adjacent um, thinking is in some in the grassroots as you've as you've reported on it as you as you've talked to folks? Sure, there was a you know there was a kind of theology that predated um, QAnon and also has survived QAnon, and that theology um, posits that um, uh, that. Democrats are incorrigibly evil, that they are enabled by um, uh, a nefarious deep state and members of what Q would call the mockingbird media, a complicit media. Um, and uh, that later when Donald Trump entered the arena, that he was this, uh, the greatest president of our lifetime, valiantly doing battle against these um, malevolent actors. And um, and everything I've just described to you, which again predates QAnon, still constitute precepts held by millions of Americans. And it's, and, um, uh, and, and that worldview enables then the view that January the 6th was not what Others have said that it is that that um, and that political prisoners have resulted who are ordinary, you know, patriotic Americans. Um, yeah, I, I um, uh, you know, we've talked about Marjorie Taylor Greene. She says she felt deceived by QAnon, but she also felt that she was deceived by The New York Times and CNN. And that's with the Rush, Russia collusion hoax. And that's what led her to QAnon to begin with. And yet, though she disavows Q. Um, she doesn't really disavow the precepts as I've just described them. If anything, she amplifies them. So, so no, those, um, those, those, you know, um, still thrive and pervade the rhetoric on the right. Um, and I do not, again, see um, how that recedes from view. Uh, a friend of mine has said, sent me a video recently that his mom had sent to him. And it was a Q video, obviously. If you know anything about, the, you know, the storm is coming, you know, all of that. And of course, it didn't say Q on it, but it, it had all of the lingo. And what struck me about it was how it was indistinguishable in many ways from the kinds of prophecy videos that you've seen in Pentecostal churches. Very true. For years and years and years. And so what Q is doing is it's plugging into pre-existing receptors that say, here's a prophecy, here's an apocalyptic vision, here is a heroic, uh, you know, here's a heroic, not exactly Messiah or Savior, true in the, in the spiritual sense, but a Savior in a secular sense, uh, the, the Trump figure or the, those who are opposing Q. And it really is remarkably, it's, it's, it's literally, to me, it was remarkable how adeptly it fused with this kind of Pentecostal worldview. And I, I say that with affection. I used to be a deacon in a Pentecostal church, okay? Right, so right. so I, I, I'm not saying, you know, these, these are horrible folks or whatever. I'm saying what we saw was a fusion of kind of pre-existing more um, apocalyptic Pentecostal Christianity with Q. And I don't think people have made that connection enough. No, no, but it's but you're exactly right about it. I mean, that's that when politics is described in eschatological terms, and mm -hmm. uh, uh, and when um, these kinds of um, 
sort of apocalyptic views are placed in a political context and amplified by cynical actors like, you know, the, um, I, I heard at a Trump rally at the beginning of this year in Arizona, um, the right-wing congressman from Arizona, Paul Gosar, repeatedly talking about the storm. The storm is coming. And he knew exactly what he was doing. There were yeah. there, there were all these people with QAnon t-shirts, you know, sitting in front of him. And uh, I think those were prepared remarks. But he again, he knew what he was doing. And, and Gosar has never been a, a QAnon adherent the way Green has. But but this is so when when this kind of cynicism is deployed to um, uh, to ratchet up one's political standing, social media influence, online donations, et cetera, um, again, it is it is weaponizing a a a, a classical Pentecostal notion and and turning it into a political call to arms. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I've I've kept you too long. And on on that happy note, <laughs> very happy, yes. so happy. We, we should wind it down. What I feel like I could talk to you forever because there are not many people who've actually sort of been embedded in this world. Um, there's a lot of people who've been talking about it and looking at it from the outside a lot, but there's not many people who've been boots on the ground at the rallies had the long conversations with the Marjorie Taylor Greene that that you talk about and that have really been on the inside. And so this is a great, I, I really appreciate you giving us our time. And and I really, uh, I, I highly, highly recommend, highly recommend the book, uh, Weapons of Mass Delusion. Find it where books are sold. Uh, and, you know, and inside, this is what, this is what is happening in our country. And, and I think the, the distance of a lot of these folks from the main major media centers means that in a lot of ways, people just don't understand. They just don't see and know it, what's happening. It, um, so I really appreciate the, the investment in being boots on the ground to, to talk to folks. And uh, so check out the book. Robert, thank you so much uh, for joining. And uh, Jonah will be back. I'm not sure exactly when Jonah will be back, but I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is my podcast. Podcast.